We have a small problem today in our worship. On the surface, it seems just fine, I suppose, even more than fine, considering the sentimental warmth of the season and its decorative trappings that are now popping up everywhere. In here, we've put up trees and dramatically suspended a wreath that counts down the four weeks in Advent with the blessings of hope, love, joy, and peace. You've likely been doing your own bit of seasonal decorating. But, but we have a little problem today. On the one hand, we're admonished to be filled with joy and rejoicing. That's the theme of the third week in Advent, and we light the candle of joy. On the other hand, in the assigned gospel reading we just heard, the wild man, John the Baptist, calls his congregation a bunch of snakes and dumb as rocks. We read about John at this time of year because according to our scripture, he's the one who announces the advent of God's salvation. All four gospels tell us about John. We should note that despite his short, sharp, and crucial role in scripture, his fiery message hasn't left an indelible mark on these sentimental weeks leading into Christmas. Our seasonal imagery doesn't include an axe with felled trees or unquenchable fire. We haven't dramatically suspended an axe above our heads as a reminder of his message. We've cleaned that all up. Well, we've even cleaned up John as well. That's him up there in the mosaics. We know it's John because he's pointing to Jesus. That's John's historic place in Christian art, the pointer to the one who is greater than he. But now... Here, John's all sparkly and quaffed, an appropriate squire to the king on the throne. I suppose that's fitting, given that I'm speaking to you from a resplendent Romanesque basilica on Park Avenue in New York City. It wouldn't serve to have a sparkling image of an agitated, disheveled, homeless-looking guy with a locust sticking out of his mouth. So, John has moved on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky in a glittering array surrounded by 34 different kinds of marble from all over the world. So, like I said, we have a bit of a problem in the disconnect with what we've heard today so far. John lived in a complicated political environment Israel was a vassal state, the Jewish kings and religious authorities, those who ran the important temple in Jerusalem, colluded with the Roman system. The Romans were okay with the Jews practicing their traditions, so long as the Roman governor approved the high priests and everyone behaved themselves. So the only place someone like John could find a pulpit was out in the wilderness somewhere, and oddly enough, he attracted quite a following despite how he spoke to them. I'm thinking I'd be hard pressed to keep my place here if I called my congregation a bunch of snakes and dumb as rocks. That just wouldn't fly. For one thing, we know one another too well at Christ Church. People know that if the shoe fit out in the congregation, it would surely fit my foot as well. But But we should assume the first century pilgrims expected something useful from John after traipsing into the desert, and they got an earful. He told them a thing or two about their priorities. 
He said they were all mixed up and turned backwards. They were headed in the wrong direction. As a matter of fact, they were headed over a cliff. He told them to wake up and turn around. Repent was his word. Sounds old-fashioned today, wrapped up with all sorts of cultural and religious baggage. But at root, repent just means turn around, take a new direction. Punctuated by his colorful metaphors, John seemed to add, get this right, no time to lose. We're not so sure what to do with that today, religiously speaking. So we've cleaned up John and mostly shut him down, reviewing his fire proclamation through the filmy gauze of cultural distractions and pious sentimentality. Did you expect me to say today that we're headed over a cliff and it might be a good thing to reconsider our direction, our priorities, our ethics and commitments, that the jig was up, as it were, I'm guessing that most of us are feeling deeply weary this December. Weary of pandemic, yet one more COVID variant, gyrating markets, disrupted work environments, unsettled personal arrangements, and all that during a massively uncivil, angry, and tribalist culture increasingly disconnected from a commitment to the common good. It's tempting to buy the idea that most of our problems have to do with the dreaded other, however defined, out there, over there, as opposed to any rot that might exist inside ourselves. Best to shut down our borders, arm ourselves to the teeth, and take to Twitter with sarcastic, fiery put-downs. I'm thinking some measure of John's message might have more traction today than it did a year or two or three ago. Just what does it mean to make room for Jesus anyway? Whatever else we might think about John, he was a change agent. He thought change ought to be made, and the change could be made, and that the change would be made, one way or another. And the change he believed in set the stage for God's intentions for the world. That's where I wound up this week, thinking about change. How does that happen, really? How is it that we can hear or see a new thing and change our direction, our minds, our hearts, our behaviors? I wonder if the people who went out to hear John already had a predilection for change, more so than we do, because I'm thinking that we're more likely to have a predilection for hunkering down and keeping things pretty much as they are. Well, pretty much keeping ourselves the way we are. John arose from the prophetic tradition that called for justice, that all persons should be treated fairly, equitably, and those who had much would share with those who had little. He said, we were meant to embody integrity and care for the other, living righteous, not to say self-righteous, lives and that a just society would be organized according to the same principles, integrity, care for the common good, and compassionate regard for one's neighbor. He also said God would ultimately win the day, come hell or high water, whether he liked it or not. But it was much better to like it. 
paradoxically, this was really, really good news because the thing God cherished above all else, like the things we hold dear in these days of Advent, hope, love, joy, and peace, would finally rise ahead of every destructive, coercive oppression and degradation. Human dignity would have ascendancy and all peoples would see it together. And oh my, that would be really something. Well, brooding on Luke's story this past week, I was struck by the mundane examples John gave when asked by the crowds, well, what, what they should do given the dramatic moment in which they lived. How could they molt out of their snakeskins? His answers were so simple, clear, and direct that it seems impossible they missed it until we give this just a bit more thought and consider the corruptions of our own lives and the lack of integrity and justice in so many of the arenas in which we have colluded. I say that gently, but purposefully. The crowds asked John, what should we do? He said, whoever has two shirts must share the one who has none, and whoever has food must do the same. Even tax collectors came. They said to him, teacher, what should we do? He replied, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. Soldiers asked, what about us? He answered, don't cheat or harass anyone. Really? Is that the answer to what needs to be done in these momentous times? That all of us should examine our own petty corruptions and turn over a new leaf? Wouldn't we rather erect an impossibly secure fence around all of our borders and shout more loudly at all the other competing tribes in our fractious land? Several Advents ago, I was part of a deep conversation with a group of men who were bravely considering how they might grow spiritually and personally. By their own admission, this wasn't the sort of conversation they normally had. But they were considering the various ways they felt vulnerable or broken and therefore available for real change in their lives. I was deeply impressed by their sincerity attempting this conversation at all when one of them offered a simple personal testimony. He shared how he had grown up as a racist. Racism was simply part of his environment and what he espoused. But at some point he began following an intentional spiritual path that ultimately included church mission trips over a number of years to various parts of the world. And one day he realized that he had been transformed, that though he was still a work in progress, his racism was largely gone. It wasn't something he so much did, but something that came as a gift. And the gift was this a very deep, deep knowing that every person was in fact a beloved child of God, period. And that changed everything. As he spoke, I could tell that this change came with a great lightness of being as though 
a heavy weight had been shed. And I thought to myself, given the season of the year, I had just heard an Advent story, a John the Baptist making things ready for the coming kingdom of God type story. And didn't we all feel a deep joy seeping into the room as he shared it? So with many other words, John proclaimed the good news to the people. 